Hello, everyone, and welcome to podcast number two. I'm Joel Harrison with the Alternative Guitar Summit. We've got a good one this month, Nels Klein. There's a lot of great music from his robust catalog, going all the way back to the early 80s and coming up to the present. A lot of candid conversation on his past and present. I sat down with Nels in his West Village apartment in December, and here we go, Nels Klein. Hello, Nels. Hi, Joel. I want to first ask Nels if he can reminisce for a second about the era when we met, which is in 1974, 75, 76 in Los Angeles, a time that was uh, very formative for us both and, and in which Los Angeles was a very different place than it is today. And there was a core of very important improvisers holding down the fort. Yes, it's true. A lot of those guys are still there, though. And uh, I think it may be a little more difficult now than it was then, but it was never easy. Uh, when I met you, you were in college, and I believe I was just out of high school. Um, okay, so we met through Bruce Bidlack, who's a sound and basically like electronic wizard engineer person. Uh, kind of a, I guess he was kind of a prodigy, you know, like early teens he was already tinkering and doing amazing things and he loved music and he recorded our earliest efforts uh and so my brother my twin brother alex and i went to go visit him and just basically waste time and drink imported beer or something uh and that's where i met joel because bruce said you have to meet this guitar player joel he like he likes a lot of the same music that you like which at this time would have been uh you know john mclaughlin Oregon, uh, Bill Connors kind of music, uh, you know, early ECM type music, uh, Don Cherry, that kind of stuff, Ornette. At this time, I was just trying to figure out what to do, making a transition technically and aesthetically from uh, rock and roll, so-called, to what we now term jazz or jazz fusion. Um, the word fusion had not been invented yet, and uh, thank God, because it basically meant that there was what they were calling jazz rock or electric jazz or millions of other names because fusion doesn't mean anything. It's like saying, oh, our music is eclectic. You know, it's basically, it's a catch-all phrase, yeah. which now sets off alarm bells, but at the time is like wide open territory and very exciting time. So having started out listening to uh, psychedelic rock and blues rock and blues and whatnot. Uh, I heard progressive rock, so-called, and around the same time, uh, you know, Miles, Bitches Brew, Early Weather Report, Herbie Hancock, Septet, and the Mahavishn Orchestra and Tony Williams' Lifetime, trying to figure out now how to play and how to learn music, because I didn't learn music from music teachers at that time. So I met Joel, and he was kind of in the same space, weren't you? I was. All right. Except not quite as advanced. Oh, well, I don't know, advanced. I mean, we were record geeks, so we were listening to a lot of stuff. And right, right around the time I met you, I was really excited about uh, Ralph Towner, certainly his, his playing, but really his composing, too. It was really yeah. amazing. And uh, John Abercrombie, uh, Bill Connors' record, Theme to the Guardian, 
his playing with Return to Forever and uh, John McLaughlin, My Goals Beyond, was huge. started messing around with this man named Vinnie Golia, who I met uh, at Rhino Records, and he had been a painter in New York and started playing woodwinds, and uh, at this point we're also very influenced by what was going on in the AACM with uh, Braxton, Art Ensemble of Chicago, and Leo Smith, uh, and started, um, you know, plundering, our, Alex and I plundered our mother's kitchen for all kinds of bowls and objects to make sound with, which it, it, AACM used to call little instruments. And we were amassing a huge collection of ethnic drums and bells and pots and pans and you know bunt pans and things like that, some yeah. of which my brother still uses. I mean, short of Don Moyer, Alex had the biggest drum set of anybody, the biggest set He filled an entire room. He, he right? eventually did. It was, it's pretty big. It's and he not, always, he would bring all of it to a gig. In the 70s, <laughs> yes. And he would take him two and a half hours to set it up because <laughs> he would hand tie each bell and whatever on right. top of this uh, racks that were made by a friend of ours named Mel English who had been a, a vaudeville and big band drummer uh, in the days when you made your own cymbal stands. He was running buddies with Dave Lehman and Steve Grossman, yeah, and we yeah. just thought this was this was like the key to the universe, and it kind of was. And so we started playing with Vinny and improvising with him in my room behind my parents' house. Uh, and let me interject here that Vinny, for anybody who doesn't know, started the Nine Wins label, which was a really important, uh, for lack of a better term, avant-garde improvisers label for years. What, yeah, it's decades? Still, still going. Still going. Well, the amazing thing about listening to this and recalling it is that at the age eight, at age eighteen, which is pretty young, uh, you and your brother had really advanced tastes. easier to hear music in Los Angeles at that time that was so-called jazz, especially during the summer, because they'd have free concerts at places. Uh, 
like what's now called the John Anson Ford Theater, but it was back then called the Pilgrimage Theater, and they had free jazz concerts every Sunday afternoon. So you could go hear Henry Franklin's band or Harold Land or uh, Hampton Hawes would play in MacArthur Park, or mm-hmm. you know, you just hear these kinds of people. Uh, and the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, which was kind of far south, but we would go there because it was all ages, and go on Tuesday night when it was the cheap night, and that's where we heard Herbie's Septet Live, that's where we heard... Uh, John Abercrombie Quartet and uh, Joe Farrell's band with right. Peter Erskine and Bob Magnuson and George Cables or right. you know all these kinds of guys. Uh, that's where I heard Pat Martino and and uh, uh, man, the list goes on. Yeah. You know. Well, so that time, the early '70s, the mid '70s. Of course, we've talked about this before, and I think about it a lot. As I get older, I realize that this was an incredibly great time to grow up as a musician. That it was one of the most fertile times in improvised music, and I think classical music in some ways too, mm. and rock music that's ever been. Yep. So how do you how do you feel that that made you who you are growing well, up in that time? I, I, I have we to could, say you could go for an hour yeah, just you know, on that. And I but, love answering this question because I actually have found myself in the last three or four years really delving back into certain things that were ex- extremely influential on me at the time. But I was very uh, it was na- I was in a nascent state. I was rather unformed. But I'm finding that, that there's still incredible resonance when I go back to, uh, you know, well, well, certain music, if you listen to a record, the last couple of records with my band, the Nels Klein Singers, uh, Initiate, and the newest one, Macroscope, there's blatant references to early 70s jazz rock. And I was a little bit concerned at first about it, and then I thought, to heck with it. I don't care. I'm going to do this. I want these sounds. And I want this approach, particularly the, the approach of early weather report, uh, the writing of Wayne Shorter and Joseph Zavino and Herbie Hancock's septet, mm-hmm. which uh, neither of which had guitarists in the band. But I think that compositionally and in terms of the 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 flexibility, the sort of openness of the way they would improvise. But it was the the early motto of weather report is we always solo and we never solo. Mm-hmm. I don't do that much in my band because it's mainly a trio at this point. Sure. Keyboards are a guest situation. Yeah. Um, but that kind of openness but coherent compositional uh, focus is endlessly fascinating and inspiring to me. So I yep. still go back to the well and I still find there's plenty of fresh water there. So you could actually get away with all kinds of what now might seem excesses, to be excesses. But I don't see them as excesses at all. I see it as music with a capital M. So, uh, and, you know, harmony also was 
going in a, in a new place in, mm-hmm. in the sense of using impressionistic harmony rather than two five one tin pan alley tune harmony. You know, now jazz had already extended the harmonic possibilities uh, dramatically. That's one of the beauties and wonders of the art form of so-called jazz. However, I was really uh, influenced by hearing the, the music that, that John Abercrombie and Ralph Towner and Keith Jarrett were writing back when Keith Jarrett wrote songs and uh, uh, learned a lot about how to play those types of chords and songs from a, a, a man who became my sort of partner musically for about 17 years, but, uh, but also a mentor, who was, who was a man named Eric Von Essen, who was a multi-instrumentalist. He and I started a duo in maybe, I think, 76 or so, uh, and that turned into a group called Quartet Music when we added my brother on percussion well, and yeah. Jeff Gautier on violin, very influenced by... Uh, Ralph and uh, and Oregon and also the Miles Davis Quintet. And one of the things that uh, you can hear on this re- new record that I just laid on you with, with Julian Lodge and me is a song called Whispers from Eve in which I, I intentionally wrote a piece of music using uh, basically most of Eric's favorite chords and chord voices. Uh-huh. And so uh, listening to this piece, which is rather like a folk song in 3-4, um, you may not know Eric's music from those days, right. but but uh, the harmony is really coming out of his love of Ralph Towner right. and the fact that he could play classical guitar and he would just show me exact voicings that he wanted and I would memorize them. He'd just write them as chord symbols and a melody for me. So he had a lead sheet type of affair. Mm-hmm. and then But but I would always play the same voicings because that's the way he wanted it. We yeah. weren't playing them really as jazz in that way. for me to my love of Ravel and mm-hmm. Debussy and Satie and Bartok and mm-hmm. and music of that sort and I was also really getting into uh, Alberto Hinastera mm-hmm. and um, uh, Abel Carlavaro who wrote beautiful guitar music um, forward looking guitar music the, the Cuban guitarist composer Leo Brower mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and one of the big aha experiences for guitar was the Benjamin Britten uh, Nocturnal on a Theme by John Dowland, uh, or, uh, which Julian Bream performed. He had written he had written this piece, Britain for Julian Bream, right. and it's a very contemporary piece. Um, Julian's records, twentieth uh, century guitar, um, and seventies were really big influences on me because he's playing Henza, he's yeah. playing um, uh, Walton. The five bagatelles, amazing. Yeah. The Barclay Sonatina. Yeah, so so things like this 
were figuring heavily into my aesthetic as well and actually kind of maybe pulling me away from the idea that I was going to follow maybe Derek Bailey into this complete world of complete uh, uh, aleatoric and idiomatic investigation that was so bold yeah. and, and so perplexing at times and not particularly emotionally involving. So I'm an emotion guy, so the push-pull of modality and, and dynamics and, and whatever rhythm and melody is kind of more what I'm about. I'm kind of old-fashioned that way. But I like making stuff up too. And uh, that's when I get to get out of my own way in yeah. a band. Right. Sometimes I just write a line and say, okay, go. Yeah. And then nothing is planned. And that way we all emerge in the music as equal partners and can, can form it in the moment. Yeah. So you're actually already beginning to answer a question that, that moves very much into the present, which has to do with your composition process. My impression from your work over these many years is that you have a lot of different ways of putting together a piece of music to present to improvisers. Mm. Um, can can you take a couple of those and just briefly describe them for us? Well, it's so random, Joel. Uh-huh. It's super random because there are pieces that I write on the guitar that start from some maybe what I consider to be a hooky riff uh-huh. or some chord combination that I just, I just find uh, irresistible and then I think no man now I have to do something with this right. and then I try to finish a piece based on something that just seemed to be sort of beautiful or resonant you know um, and I really have a bad habit of ending maybe a third if not more of my pieces with some kind of ecstatic repetition where uh-huh. I'm trying to create a trance like environment of not only a kind of stasis once it arrives but massive drama at the same time mm-hmm. so very unjazz in that way um, so I'm trying for an effect basically I'm trying to to lift you and catapult you into this magic world of sound the way I experience it I guess and I'm assuming that if I'm experiencing it that maybe you can too so there's that kind of writing and then there's the writing I just described which might be what you might term free jazz mm-hmm. and those are not always the best tracks on my records because I'm not even much of a real jazz player. But but those lines I just sing to myself and I learn them on the guitar. Mm. You know, uh, I figure out what's in my head and then I teach it to myself and then I write it down. Unfortunately, in my early music, uh, with my first trio especially, just with uh, uh, Bob Mayer and Michael Preussner, I didn't write out any of my guitar parts. I just thought I was going to remember them forever. <laughs> I just wrote up bass and drum parts. So they're irretrievable unless you learn them again? I have to do takedowns of my own music. It's <laughs> Iron in turn. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't, I've never taken my music seriously enough in that way to even you know, like preserve it. I well, we, but it's maybe we're ready for folders. the Nels Klein songbook. Yeah. Um, so I actually did something I had not done in years, which is listen to some of my own records. There are only two of my records that I ever listened to. It's, one of them is called Destroy All Nels Klein, and the other one is called Coward. Mm-hmm. And they're both works of pure obsession, and they're made really just for me. Um, and kind of succeeded, so I enjoy listening to some of those records. The other ones I hadn't really paid much attention to. Mm. And I went back and realized not only do I have these, these patterns that I've just described, uh-huh. uh, compositional uh, habits, shall we say. All right. um, but, but I also realized that uh, 
I didn't know any of these songs. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I thought, right. oh man, I want to do this song with, uh, I wanted to do this piece called The Right that used to play all the time that's dedicated to the actress Ingrid, Ingrid Tulin. And and I thought, oh, I will remember that one. I used to play it all the time. And I find myself like doing a whole takedown and just relearning it. But writing music with my hand, I don't think you have this problem because you do so much writing and arranging, but the hardest thing in the world for me is to start to get put the pen in my hand. I do it in pen so it doesn't drag. Until Julian turned me on to these pencils that don't drag. So uh-huh. my life's changing already. But that first note, just putting a treble clef on there. I don't do it on the computer. I handwrite everything. And just putting that treble clef on there mm-hmm. and a time signature and starting to write that first note is some kind of horrendous hurdle for me. Wow. I just really hate it. Well, I mean, I, I eventually <clears throat> took theory classes and musicianship classes at a, in a community college because I was told in high school that it was too late for me to learn music really certainly not as a major in music so I went into philosophy and I went to Occidental College and I was a philosophy major um, and then realized that this is absurd that I was going to play music for the rest of my life I knew this from the time I was 12 years old when I heard Jimi Hendrix play Manic Depression it was on the radio and I knew it was Hendrix even though I hadn't heard him yet because we just knew that that was that guy on that cool looking album right and uh, Alex and I were jumping around, freaking out. And when I heard that song, it was, it was the most magic I'd ever, the most potent magic I'd ever yep. been around. And there was a lot of potent magic around at that time. I, th- yeah. I think that I Am the Walrus was another one that transported us into this whole other sound universe. Yeah. And, uh, but that song right there galvanized me to the point where I knew I wanted to play guitar for the rest of my life and make music. set you apart the first is that you mentioned that you're a i think your words were you're a heart guy or a feeling guy for yeah, music it's, it's <clears> mostly <throat> emotion based. yeah emotion based each one of your records that i know of it always has at one at least one just heartbreaking uh ballad ballad <laughs> I, I don't even want to say sad but there's a, a I, I i i think you have a a, a sense of pathos and an ear for a beautifully tragic melody. Let's, well, let's put it that way. Well, thank you. I'm going for that. Uh, I don't think that's that common. Let's put it that way for okay. people who also do the other completely extroverted mm. stuff that you are also known for. Well, I think that the least interesting aspect of my records, let's say the singer's records, is my soloing. And then I meet young players, and that's all they're into. And no one ever talks about my tunes. So I'm very happy to to talk about this with you, Mm -hmm. because I'm much more interested in what feelings I get from the songs than how I play on them. 
and I feel like I've almost put myself, painted myself into a corner having to solo in my own band, and I'm tired of solos. Unless I have a foil, you know, I like to have a foil. That's why it's beautiful to play with a, with another with a horn player or with with Julian. Right. I always like more than one guitar. Anyway, mm-hmm. if I was going to add another instrument besides having added percussion when possible to the singers with Ciro Baptista in the band, I would always want another guitar player. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that's eh, not going to. I can't. I can't really do that, <laughs> especially on the ballads where right. I get really picky. Yeah. about what, how much space is being saved and what kind of voicings everything has it has to be resonant in a certain way yeah. an example of this is a, a piece that ends the uh, first singer's record instrumentals it's called Slipped Away and I'm playing baritone guitar you have one it's a Jerry Jones baritone oh, I love it. And, uh, oh, I know that tune yeah, yeah it's got tremolo beautiful. on the yeah, amp yeah. and, and uh, the middle of it sounds a little bit like he loved him madly from uh, get up with it by Miles Davis. It's just like it's very funereal, I guess, on a certain. Huh. And it's, and it slipped away is actually. Um, I'm outing myself on this. At the time I wrote it, in my head was I should say maybe it still is, the song that I would want played at my funeral. trying to embrace the triad now as an older dude it's uh-huh. been my new thing you know there's a piece on uh maybe on more than one track with uh, pieces i've written for uh for me and julian to play and i arranged one of them for a record i recorded this year called lovers and it's called the bond and it's dedicated to my wife yuka and uh it ends on a g major triad and it's a very simple repetitive song 
Um, when Julie and I play it, we tie it to a, a, another piece that's just kind of a, a rubato chord progression with a little G Lydian, um, almost like it's almost like Kora music or Indian music or something mm. in the middle. It's just a drone. Mm-hmm. Um, I like drones. I, you know, too much chord movement gives me a like makes me nervous and gives me a headache. <laughs> Even though I'm amazed by it, I right. find myself getting a little like tired or something, mm-hmm. worn out. Yeah. But um, but I think it's probably because I can't really negotiate those chords too well. I, I wish I could. Maybe that's where it comes from. I just start having anxiety. When I, um, <laughs> but on this piece, the bond it ends on the G major triad, and then I arrange. Uh, I suggested how to arrange it for, to Michael Leonard, who did the arrangements for this big orchestrated yes. record that I've done. And once again, and the whole album ends with that piece, on mm. uh, G major triad. And every time I hear it, I turn to whomever, whether it was Ron St. Germain, who engineered Lovers, or, or um, Julian and Chris Allen was uh, engineering at, say, at uh, Sear. Uh, or I turn to David Breskin and say, see, I've grown up. <laughs> I ended an entire record on a major triad. This would never have happened in the previous 40-some years. This is impossible. It has to end either poignantly sad or maybe humorously and, uh, uh, you know, obliquely in order to lead to the next possibility. But you also, that that brings me to my next point, which is you also have, I would say, a very refined sense of humor in yeah, no, but thank music. you. Nobody gets my humor in, in my my music. Well, I, I don't think, even think humor is important in music, but I think I think humor is very hard to do in music. Yeah, and I think there's very few examples. But I mean, give me an example, because I mean, it's an inside joke most of the time, and I think it's super obvious. But you know me, maybe that helps. the fact that you've cultivated uh, an ability to create sounds with a guitar that not a, not very many people can do through your use of electronics, some of which are so surprising and so, somewhat shocking that they make one laugh. That, well, that's fun. That's fun. I mean, I am having fun with, with that stuff, but it was never a goal for me to be using all these kinds of electronic gadgets to alter the sound of the guitar. I started out as a total sound purist, Yeah, you know, and very self-conscious. And it, it was at this point that I decided to take a more modest path in music and not try to emulate the, the magician Jimi Hendrix or people who were flashy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to take a, a more modest approach. And it was around this time that uh, Dwayne Allman became my god, basically. Um, and along with a handful of other guitar players that I was admiring, but Dwayne was my guy. Right. And... Um, so that was it. No more 
fuzz, no more Wawa. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I also didn't use his sort of like creamy, overdriven distortion because I didn't even have any good equipment. And I just played really clean with reverb. And uh, and then then I heard this man Jan Ackerman playing with this band Focus at the Whiskey A Go Go, and that was another revelation where he was playing obscenely clean but at massive decibel level, and playing all kinds of crazy notes and tossed off virtuosic insanity with a snarl and a smirk on his face and a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. And I'd never experienced anything like this guy, you know. So he was he and Steve Howe. And, and Robert Fripp were starting to become influences on me after Dwayne was killed on his mm-hmm. motorcycle. And then when Dwayne was killed, I was so inconsolable that I think I, as I look back on it now and as I've come back into that world, uh, surprisingly, and, and I'm re- grateful for it. But anyway, uh, I think that I was so inconsolable that I turned my back on blues rock completely. And I was also getting into well, early weather report and, wow. and uh, progressive rock. So I think the first time I thought about using effects with guitar was probably from hearing Steve Howe, but I didn't try to emulate him or do that. The only reason it happened was because Vinnie Golia left a, an echoplex in my room hmm. that he used to use with his saxophone. It just sort of went on from there. Well, I see this aspect of your playing as, as an orchestral approach so that you can create sounds that an orchestra or a large group might create all by yourself. So the other aspect of your composing that I think is interesting is that you actually shape certain pieces just based on sounds and that these soundscapes themselves convey emotion. Mm. Well, I think that most of those sounds I have arrived at from improvising because I never practice plugged in. So I don't write pieces of music based on some kind of sound that I design for myself. I actually just, it's much more random than that. That's really surprising to me, even I who who have known you. But the thing that I like to do in the studio is layer guitars or add subtle overdubs to enhance the uh, overtones and Mm -hmm. to make it sound more bitchin'. Mm. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh And I keep saying that the next singer's record, it's going to be... Totally live, and uh, and now actually it will be because the next singer's record is not what I planned at all. John Zorn asked us to be one of the groups doing some of the Masada Book Three, uh, the book Bariah. Um, so I do want to do that live. Huh. Tell me a little bit about your relationship to the tradition of jazz. I don't want to overstate this, and I don't want it to sound pathetic, and I don't want it to sound dramatic or flip. Okay, so those are the. They'll okay. probably, they'll probably it's a lot sound, of caveats. They'll probably sound like all of these things, uh-huh. but I think there are many things at play here. One is that I don't think that I was at, at first in those you're talking about uh, or those early days when we were talking about these formative experiences when we started talking about Weather Report and we started talking about Tony Williams' lifetime and progressive rock and all this blues rock kind of stuff. It doesn't inherently rule out the the idea that I would at some point embrace so-called traditional jazz. But it didn't light me up sonically at first, the same way all this other music did, which sounded like it was coming from uh, some magic realm. Mm. It's, a, it's very modest and human, and uh, 
the fact that Weather Report, I, I reflected on this recently, I forgot it, was one of the things they endeavored to do was stop playing swing time. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of a rebellion there. Um, I never thought about that kind of stuff, but I don't think I was initially attracted to swing music. Mm. Um, certainly later in life, I not only became in awe of jazz players, but also I became convinced that if I didn't learn jazz, that I was an idiot. Um, <laughs> but I'm basically really lazy. So I didn't go headlong into Donna Lee. It's, I have to learn Donna Lee. What's that line? I have to teach it to myself if nobody will teach it to me. No, I wasn't intrepid or passionate enough about it mm. to, to take that route. Robert Motherwell, the abstract expressions painter called Innermost Necessity, mm. which he felt great art uh, sprang from because it exists in the face of logic and uh, conventionality and... You know, obviously, are you going to make a living? The chances are no. Right. You know, all I ever wanted from music was to be able to play it enough that I could do it all the time. I thought I had to choose electric or acoustic. I thought I had to choose jazz or rock hmm. or how whatever. How old were you at, at the time? This is probably in my early twenties, mm-hmm. and uh, and then and actually I even think a further lot of into that, face this this kind of crisis. By the way, I became so nutted out by this that I almost quit playing guitar. Somebody who was uh, in, the, in the early 80s became obsessed with Sonic Youth. The idea of trying to reconcile these aesthetic choices of the jazz world and of this now so-called noisy alternative rock or whatever um, kind of comes together in a way in Jim Hall's music because he's not afraid of dissonance. He's not afraid of idiomatic uh, guitar playing uh, and he uses all kinds of sense of form he's not just playing you know head solo head mm-hmm. you know if you listen to one of my favorite records of all time called These Rooms and the title track on that record is this sort of episodic contemporary music journey that ends up with like a, a, a second line New Orleans groove uh-huh. you know yeah. all I can say is yes to that <laughs> it's just so good that yeah. record is so inspiring his influence in, in your playing and even though his mastery of rhythm guitar is mm. is very particular maybe not something that that you embraced in your own sound in the way that he did what I hear in your playing that's reminiscent of Jim's mm-hmm. trio is the emphasis on interplay between all the partners in the band um, the way that the guitar is kind of an the center of an orchestra and is uh, you're trying to elicit something bigger than just a guitar with the sound. Right, right, right. And also the... Uh, That's know, the, very, very uh, perceptive uh, about Jim, what yeah. you're saying, I think. Because I don't know if everyone gets that. 
let's let's I, I think that anybody who's listening to this who's um, you know younger than 45 is going to be mad at me if I don't talk about Wilco okay the thing is I knew you for so long before you joined that band that right. to, to me that's a mere asterisk in your it's a blip. bibliography <laughs> um, it's nonetheless it's yeah. a, it's an interesting and important one so just just a couple, couple things that I found interesting listening to you do some of this music when I really started to dig in with the earphones and listen to what you were doing I was like Jesus Christ, Nels is really incredibly fluent and efficient in many styles of, of American guitar music. I, I sense that always talking with you, but I didn't picture a day when you would actually record something that sounded so uh, in the tradition and yet still had your stamp. So I know you pride yourself justifiably on being able to come up with a good part for a song. It's part right. of being in a rock band. Right. And I'm, I want you to just talk a little bit about how it, how, in what ways it excites you to, to be part of the band, to be part of the orchestra, and to come up with a George Harrison-like mm. perfect part with just the right sound and right. just the minimal amount of notes. You, no wank whatsoever. Right. Well, it's very difficult for me to uh-huh. not wank, I have to say. <laughs> um, the biggest challenges I've had playing music that's not jazz basically come from trying to do the succinct five to ten second solo on a pop song hmm. that's it's, really it's, hard it's right? very hard it's yeah. very very hard and there's usually a million different possibilities because the song is is inherently probably very harmonically familiar so it's not like it's going to create itself just based on the funny chords you know what i mean it's going to be the same chords you've heard of four billion times right the same, usually a 4-4 four, four beat, you know. So um, there are so many things that are unexpected about my life. And I certainly never thought I'd be in a band like Wilco, and certainly not for 10 years. And uh, and I didn't think I'd ever become as well-known as I am now, which is all mostly because of Wilco. And um, But the other thing that's great about it is that it's challenging. So, mm-hmm. yes, these little solos are challenging, uh, coming up with the part is challenging. Trying to delve into styles that I wasn't paying very strict attention to uh, is really enjoyable because mm. I feel like I'm learning all the time. Right now I'm obsessed with trying to just listen to guys like uh, like Jimmy Bryan, who I've been listening to for a little while, but but like, uh, uh, well, Chet Atkins. You know? Jimmy Weibel. <laughs> Jimmy Weibel, yeah. These kinds of guys um, that are almost jazz players but have a, a completely different sonic design to their sound and also mm. uh, and they don't bend notes hardly at all mm. uh, I'm not much of a note bender except when I play with Wilco all of a sudden I'm playing a song from their early days and nobody's telling me how to play the solo so I go completely Hendrix mm. on a couple of these tunes and it's just what I'm hearing mm. and everybody seems to think it sounds okay no one says anything I uh-huh. never thought I'd be doing this <laughs> similarly I never thought I'd be playing basically up-tempo country flat picker type songs mm. and I want to kill on this stuff so now I feel it's incumbent upon me to get get closer to the Jimmy Bryant thing get into the Joe Mafis world get into the uh, the zone with you know Tony Rice and mm. uh, you know real flat pickers um Doc Watson. Well, you know, it's a different I, I, instrument than the electric yeah. guitar. But is it hard for you to subsume your very strong and eclectic personality 
into the confines oh. of these of, of a of right. a song where you are simply serving the song is the master and you're serving as uh, as the backdrop for it. No. <laughs> it's not. Good. I Tell mean, us apparently, why. Well apparently there are a lot of of my good friends, improviser friends here in New York who are very concerned. They wonder how I could keep doing this. Oh, you know, I don't wonder be, that at must all, be incredibly, just for the record. I know, I'm just saying, I think, they would, so think fun. they would be bored to death. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And uh, uh, so I've thought about this, and I do think that I like playing with people that I like and who do music that I like. Um, obviously, I'm not too concerned about what the style of music is, hmm. and I'm closer to some styles than others. And certainly Wilco taps into a part of myself that's, probably like around 13 to 15 years old that uh-huh. I never thought I'd tap into because <clears throat> I'm like not only right back to hearing in my head something that Dwayne might have played but also ended up jamming with Clarence the Allman White, Brothers yeah. Or, yeah, Clarence White but all, you know now I've played with members of the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead because of Wilco basically someone heard me and and now I'm really having to delve into this songbook on some level mm. But still in this sort of like half-on way where I just fly by the seat of my pants and go, God, I wish I'd done that better. So that's basically the story of my entire life. But, <laughs> but with Wilco, it's just one of those things where there's great chemistry and camaraderie with the band. It's really relaxed. The first When I first started playing with Wilco, I was wondering, is this going to be one of those rock bands that that like practices for eight hours and i'm gonna have to nail every little note from the records and it was exactly the opposite we played for like three hours and jeff said sounds great and walked out and i was like Uh everybody's really friendly and i asked a few questions like is this because at first they said well here's a list of songs we should probably like get together it was about 60 songs Mm -hmm. so uh the biggest struggle was you know i'd write little charts for myself or something sometimes was to keep them up be able to tell them apart right you know so uh so for example via chicago and she's a jar which are almost the same song in some ways at first i was like is this the one in g or the one in d oh my god which one is it (laughs) Uh you know um because i wasn't a wilco fan i just knew one record right so uh which i liked i liked this record i used to hear it in the van when i was touring with my band and carla bozilich mm-hmm. used to listen to yankee hotel foxtrot in the van you know i heard that song reservations and i said okay yeah i get That's it a great yeah, song. this yeah. is so so jeff's writing amazing songs you know yeah. and everybody plays great and we get along and i'm having a blast and i stopped being completely broke all the time so what's so, wrong so with what's, that? Yeah, what's wrong with this <laughs> picture this? <laughs> well i'm not improvising all the time and yeah. i'm not running the show and i'm not uh people think i've put a huge stamp on the band i was not trying to i started doing looping and more distortion and and well, well that's why jeff i think wanted me in the band is he wanted somebody to do some other stuff right and also i play you know a fair amount of lap steel which I never thought I would be doing other than with the Geraldine Fibbers. I used to do it on one song. So actually playing with the Fibbers that began my uh, appreciation of country music because when I was younger, my folks were really against it. They didn't mm-hmm. like anything hillbilly. They were trying to be he was kind of highbrow because they came, yeah. came from poverty. And, uh, uh, and then, you know... They were very conservative, and I wanted to be a hippie, and and, uh, and I didn't understand the outlaw country thing too well, and it wasn't musically all that appealing to Even me. Even though you were in Merle Haggard territory out there, not into it, not into <laughs> Merle, you know, Okie from Muskogee, no thanks, you know, and 
So then I got into Hank Williams from working in the record store. And then I started listening to more country music with an open mind. And then with, with the Geraldine Fibbers, it was almost like a requirement to, to be into George Jones. When mm. I got into George Jones, I, I really, really understood something about emotion in music and a certain approach to songwriting that I didn't know about before, mm. really. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole cry in your beer kind of thing. Yeah. That guy did it better than just about anybody. Right. And that song, The Grand Tour, uh, for example, or maybe Willie doing uh, Hands on the Wheel, mm. are just such great songs. So so coming into the into Wilco, I had begun to have a, a very deep appreciation for this type of writing, you know. And just like writing, you know, Bob Dylan songs, or whether it's Levon... Mm. Helm or whomever. So that's why it's a pleasure because the songs are good. The band is excellent. I mean, I'm sorry. These guys all play their asses off and they're all really cool dudes. Recently, I guess versatile, you know, and and <laughs> so uh, I have to you. say, well, you know, I think that used to be a liability. I mean, it, the, there was a time in the late seventies when, or in, and even the early eighties, when somebody came into a so-called free jazz group with a fuzz box that you were destroying the music. That's mm-hmm. what everyone called it, the music, and the, the the music needed to be protected from pop elements, and that the right. music couldn't grow in well. a certain direction, and only had to grow in a direction deemed appropriate by the the writers which, or whatever. Which <laughs> helped push us away from traditional jazz forms because of that 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 time period. There was a very strong and vocal component of people in the more straight ahead jazz world that really felt that way. It was like fine, I don't need to be like you. Right. I'm going my own way. And of course, then I had to years later, like you try to figure out what I'd missed and sort of learn some stuff that was like gaping oh, yeah. holes in my well, that's, pedagogy. I think that's we're having exactly identical paths in that way because plus what makes me versatile is a combination of when when I came up and, and what that did to my consciousness, which we've discussed quite a bit today here. Yeah. 
you know, psychedelic rock, blues, blues rock, you know, eventually country. Indian music was huge since I was 10. Right. Uh, Brazilian music, uh, West African pop, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. Yeah, you first At a time when I'm Victor just... Jara. And, yeah, exactly. The Chilean music, right. Yeah, oh, that's huge for me. Kilapayun, Intiyamani, <laughs> yeah. Cancion Nueva, Violeta Parra, sure. Very important. Um, along with this, what we discussed, classical music mm-hmm. and composing and classical guitar. All at a time when I'm just learning about music and sound and life. you know. So, so there's that, and then there's the instrument itself, the electric guitar particularly. In- incredibly malleable, incredibly flexible, changeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have imagination, you can do anything with this thing, mm. you know? So I think that's the versatility. It's really, yeah. it's really more about how much you can imagine or how much you can take in and appreciate rather than being like a session musician that could effectively imitate any sound, any mm. style. I think I'm just a guy who tries to sound like these things and then they say, hey, it's all the same guy. He must, you know, he has a, a really great take on that. And I'm just like, I'm just trying to sound like those guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But but ending up sounding like me because I don't have it down that well. Yeah. Okay, you know so I, mean? I do. I do very much. So, so we, we we probably need to wrap this up because we've been jawboning for way longer than, than expected. This is but even longer than my thing with Charlie Hunter, which <laughs> which I didn't even know was going to be on the the internet to like 45 minutes of talking. Well, well, I'll, have to, <laughs> I'll, I'll put a link to it on this. Oh, it's I'll hilarious. <laughs> but what I, what I want to ask you about in, uh, in closing is, um, is this. So up until the late 90s, and, and you, you say that Wilco was a big part of this, and I'll, I'm, I'm sure that's true. Uh, much like uh, so many others in the world of improvised music, no matter uh, how good you are or, or how, many, how high you place in the polls or whatever, oh God. Uh, you go out and play and there's 12 people there and you go on to the next gig and there's 15 and then if you're really lucky there's 62 right and then you're really you know you're actually pocketing like 120 dollars when you're walking away and feeling pretty jake about life right so now you're in uh i think a wonderful position that i i i have i'm happy knowing about it just from knowing you in, in years gone by where you can go play somewhere and play your own music and people are going to be there and that's great you're one of the the few people I know who's who I can say that of now. So what I want you to do is briefly mm. address all those players out there, some of whom we'll never know or hear of, who are so good and so dedicated and so uh, passionate about music and are fighting this uphill battle which you fought for so many years. And and not to say that your life is easy now, but are a little bit on the other side of that. No, address those people and and and. And let's end with a real positive okay. kind of pep talk. Well, um, and I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I was going to go back to a day job when Jeff Tweedy called me because I was in California, mostly working in the Bay Area because Scott Amendola would put me on gigs at restaurants and he'd have this and this and that, anything. He's keeping me busy. I finally had a car that could make the trip between L.A. and uh, Oakland. And... Um, it was getting so stressful uh, to make what at that time was virtually non-existent rent. I couldn't even make six hundred dollars a month rent uh, in my girlfriend's house, you know. Um, 
she's probably the one who finally said to me, maybe you should just get a job because you're stressing so heavy and it's, you're acting like a, like a crazy person, which was true. Um, so then Jeff called. Okay, so yes, that changed everything. At the same time, a lot of other things sort of started ramping up as well. I started doing these gigs with Rova Orchestrova. Um, you know, Larry Oakes wasn't calling me to do that because he found out I was in Wilco. He'd never <laughs> heard Wilco. Um, and I'd known Larry a little bit since the 70s, you know. So a lot of these things all started happening at the mm-hmm. same time. But by this time, I am uh, I was 48 years old. Mm. And I thought that if I continued thinking that every year is going to be better than the last one, that I was now becoming actually pathetic and delusional. So uh, in this sense, Jeff totally rescued me. But if my life has any kind of meaning that we can observe and try to make into a story or some kind of pattern, it's that I just can't do anything else besides play, and eventually I got to. You know, I don't know how that happens. And it's not because the best... The cream rises to the top. It's really not, life's not fair, mm. right? But there's literally the possibility of complete miracle around the corner if my life means anything. You just never know. And I just like to play. You know, now I'm here in, living in New York where I've wanted to live since I was 19. Uh, I'd been here in 67, 68. And when I came in 76 with my brother to hear loft jazz and go to the Newport Jazz Festival... I I just thought, this is it. I've got to figure out how to stay in New York. Well, and then I ended up getting married, and a lot of other stuff happened. So I didn't come. I also had no self-confidence, okay? Mm. And this time would have probably chewed me up and spit me out if I'd moved here earlier. Mm. Now I didn't. Now that I live here, because I got married, I moved here for love, but I also love New York. And the stuff that happens here... It's so it's so diverse and so vast and so dense that you never know what's going to happen. Mm. So for me at this point, stuff just keeps coming up, and I can't even do it all, mm. and it's incredible. So sometimes it helps to get out of your little town and get closer to that where the action is. And maybe I could have done that a lot sooner. Mm. But the one thing I never wanted to do was stop playing. And now I play it kind of too much, like in New York especially. It's not like I have a big crowd because it's like I just played last week. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm a little too uh, ubiquitous at this point perhaps because I just like to play. Mm -hmm. So I just go out and play with these people that are so good. They're so much better than me. And then I get to strive and participate in sound making. And that's all I ever wanted to do. And I get to do it all the time. So it could be that you find that special magic miracle waiting around the corner tomorrow. 